Hello everyone, welcome to WeGCast. This is, a, oh fuck, what episode is it? Oh, 18, Andy. It's episode 18. 18. Right. Yeah. right. Anyway, it's episode 18. Uh, this evening we've got the lovely Jo Dalton with us. Uh, she's going to tell us about her, her life and all the fun stuff. So, let's dive in. Jo, how are you doing this evening? Very well, thank you. A little bit later than expected, but uh, <laughs> yeah, excited to get started. Very honoured to be invited onto Ouija Cast. Thank you very much. Oh, <laughs> uh, Joe, uh, I just want to start by saying that uh, I met you uh, obviously at SteelCon last year, uh, and I don't think I've ever had an introduction with somebody where not, I've not last year, two years ago, mate. Two, oh god, good god, like. Let's pretend last year didn't happen, like a year ago. <laughs> right. uh, but uh, yeah, I, 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 very vivid memory of meeting you like for the first time at SteelCon. Andy obviously introduced you. Uh, and it has to be the fen- friendliest introduction I've ever had to someone that uh, immediately endeared uh, you to myself. So uh, I'm so happy to have you on the cast because uh, you were a great laugh that entire weekend. Uh, so yeah, thanks for joining us. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. So, um, yeah, um, we normally what? start by kind of going through um, kind of y- your intro story, your uh, origin story, to get a feel for kind of where you've came from, to get a better idea of obviously kind of who you are at the moment and where you're going. So, um, out of interest, uh, how would you define yourself uh, as in your job within the industry, and how long have you how long have you been doing it? Oh, wow. I'm sure that question wasn't on the pre-approved list. How, <laughs> how do I define myself in cybersecurity? How does anybody define themselves in cybersecurity? That's a deep question. Wow. <laughs> Philosophy. We don't mess around here. Right? We don't. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I'll start with the easy question. Um, so I, I went back and had a count up, to be honest, ahead of joining uh, the podcast. And I've actually been in cybersecurity for 16 years, mm-hmm. um, but I've also been in sales for 19 years. So I guess it depends on what you would define as my industry, because I absolutely, and as everybody knows who meets me, I absolutely adore and very passionate about the cybersecurity industry. Mm-hmm. However, my primary role has been within the kind of sales area of cybersecurity. And I'm very, very proud of my roots. Um, I think it's actually provided me with a very niche opportunity to engage with clients on a real level mm-hmm. um, as I have taken the time to kind of adapt and learn uh, as you can't help but doing cyber security it's so exciting there is so many different things to learn so many mm-hmm. differences to jump into and every single one of them is just intriguing exciting and it does have you know the projects that we get involved in can ha- can have significant consequences and it's, it's just an honor to be involved in the industry mm-hmm. But with being involved in sales, and that was from the ground up, you know, I was ultimately involved in a a telephone sales role. But I think it was very much about approaching it differently within cybersecurity because you had to take the time to research the business in advance, research the individuals that you were going to look to speak with. GDPR wasn't around then, so cold calling was still very much um, a real thing. Mm. I I believe cold calls still happen, but obviously they shouldn't. (laughs) Um, What's what's this legal thing people speak of? I mean, uh, that's fine. 
Thanks, absolutely. But what I, I found very early on, and we'll touch on a few things later, but I really care about people. And what I'm very conscious of is if people are willing to give you their time, whether it's two minutes on a telephone call, 30 minutes on a conference, you need to make that time valuable yep. for them and for yourself. Mm. So I made sure that every time I picked up that telephone, I, I could provide whoever I was speaking to some immediate value, whether it was a link to a free resource, whether it was a white paper to a piece of research, something that was outside the box. It was nothing to do with actually selling a service or a particular product at that time. It was giving value to the customer and giving value to the client in, in cybersecurity. Yeah. And I think by taking that approach from... Uh, Straight away, you know, as I said, this was 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. It has built into, it's helped with skills with regards to project management, adapting in, and assisting with uh, devising social engineering engagements, red team engagements, and being able to build full portfolios of services for clients that bring value, but from the bottom up as well as from the top down and yeah. understanding where that right line is. Because um, I think cybersecurity sales, I think whether it's technology, a service, do you know what? They, they tend to get a bad rap. Salespeople get a bad rap in general, but... Every every organisation out there buys services and they know good salespeople. They know those consultants that are bringing that instant added value that are more than just a sales consultant. Um, yeah. And I think that's really, really important. It's having that multifaceted approach and mm-hmm. the ability, the minute anyone picks up the phone, being able to talk about web application testing, infrastructure testing, red teaming, secure by design hardware reviews, no matter the industry, the regulation, the requirement, you have to have the ability to speak about that within 60 seconds. Yeah, and quickly, like uh, that, that is a bit massive challenge because there's so much variation in the industry, there's so much complexity, uh, and it's not just being able to describe it, you know, uh, as if you're describing to your friend or someone down the pub something, it's describing it in a way that uh, obviously highlights the value of the service that you're offering as well, so you know, it has to be in detailed information you're giving them, I'd imagine, so... Uh, no, I, I, I would struggle with that role, so I admire anyone that can do it, to be quite honest. I suppose to to a degree, like the, the job that you do, Joe, you could argue that you are a social engineer, is what you do, but you do it for the, the gain, um, not not from a malicious perspective, but like if you've got 60 seconds to get somebody's attention, you do need to play the conversation in a kind of, well, a targeted manner, so that you, you do your background research, you find out who you're speaking to, maybe you, you get a, a bit of a segue in there, so you do get their hook of attention, then you can you can build them out and do what you need to do. Oh, absolutely. And I hope, so, you know, I do hope that some of my long-term customers do listen to this podcast, because I will reference several of the people who have I've contacted them, I've picked up the telephone, sent them an email regarding something, and the... Are you, are you listening to my conversations? Do you have a device in the office? Because it's absolutely what they're looking for at that moment in time, or it's a particular subject matter that's become of interest. The yeah. key thing, and I think it's a positive thing, but it's a double-edged thing in cybersecurity. There's so much to know yeah. that nobody can know everything. So you can. There's always value to add somewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, how do you handle uh, a little bit off script, but relevant to what we're talking about? Um, uh, how do you handle it when you you get thrown a curveball and you maybe get taught uh, asked something that you you just don't know like on the spot? How how do you handle that? 
you know, I, I absolutely just say I don't know the answer to that, but I've got a, a wealth of, of experienced people that I can go and speak to. Tell me more about what it is you're trying to achieve, understand what the risk is, give me some more information, give me some more context. From there, I can usually drill down a little bit further, but all you need to do is be able to get relevant and contextual information to go then go forward and take that to the experts and line them up. I think it's really, really important for everybody to be able to very just very clearly acknowledge when they don't know something. Um, cloud has been a fantastic example of that. You know, the <laughs> amount of cloud technology and cloud vendors and cloud capabilities when I first, my very first cloud project, I think we were, you know, I was kind of a one day project that very soon escalated into 35 day projects because it had to become so much more complex. There were more areas to review yeah. and that has to be taken into consideration and you can never know everything referring back to the previous point. So I don't see any shame in it. I absolutely don't know, but if you give me an hour, I can go and read up on it and come yep. back to you with a plan or or I can go and speak to somebody and come back to you. And I think that's a really valuable thing to remember and mm -hmm. also for people to acknowledge. If somebody says they don't know, it's not a negative. Give them a chance to go off and give you further advice, research and come back to you. I appreciate the honesty, um, to be honest, like, I'm sure many people do, like, um, and I think that, that kind of transparency with, uh, done in the right way um, could probably endear you to, to, to them as well. Um, I, I always, personally, the, the way I tend to see it, the way I think, uh, I think about the, the complexity and the array of different knowledge you need to be able to do these kind of jobs is to think of yourself as more, uh, a bit of a librarian. Uh, a librarian might not know the contents, you know, of every book, but they know what shelf to find it on. Like, and I think a big part is being able to do that, understanding enough of the higher level and ideas and concepts. And if you need to find specifics, you know where to go research it. And obviously the ability to do that fast is beneficial as well. Absolutely. And I think just also explaining the journey that people could potentially need to go on. Even from the very first call, people are generally looking for advice, contextualisation over the risks that they're facing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to to just take a moment to... to to think about that and make sure you're putting forward the right recommendations. Yep. Yeah. Like you say, a, context is everything. Yeah, I have a, a very valuable saying and I introduce it on the first call with every customer, which is you will always come first, absolutely, but you're not always right. Yeah, that's honesty though, isn't it? Really, when you boil it down, like uh, w w just to drill a little bit into that, uh, uh, what do you kind of mean by that? And uh, w when you say it to customers, I, uh, I'm assuming there's a good reason why you bring it up. Uh, yeah, because I think it's uh, as I said about taking people on a journey, understanding what the base level of understanding security is, what the different levels are, because people will come and ask for a penetration test without even understanding what that is. Yeah. Some, Somebody will have told them to do one. They come and ask the question forward. There's no reason or rhyme for it. And it's trying to, taking them a step back. Well, who are you? What are you trying to achieve? Who's yep. made the request? And helping them to, to redefine what they're asking for, really understanding what the requirement is. And mm. then taking that forward. And sometimes people who are very experienced with penetrate will come to you with requirements. However, 
it will have been 12 months. Things can have cha could have changed. There are different approaches to be taken. Yep. And I think it's always worth just having that fresh conversation. Have you considered this option? And a lot of clients that I have these conversations with don't always have the significant budgets to do absolutely everything that they want to do, they need to do. Yep. So it's about building it into the roadmap and educating people that there are things as, as well as doing the standard penetration testing every year. Well, why not build a little bit of extra budget in and maybe do a bit of social engineering? Why not flex the, um, you know, if we're doing some internal testing, well, why don't we build some extra time in and maybe do some more in-depth testing? Why don't we adapt to the programme? Why don't we adapt your budget to be more adversarial and be a, a red team? Mm -hmm. Taking people on that journey to encourage them into deeper security, getting more value for the money, educating them on what they can do internally to be saving costs and maximising on what they are doing through knowledge transfer, developing their own tools and processes internally. Mm. You know, I get really, really excited when I, I start working with a company who does no penetration testing and six years later they are doing all annual testing, they are doing mm. you know, blended red team, purple team testing, security mm. awareness training, you know, incident response and you get excited because you've taken them on that journey from that very first phone call, What they, they didn't really know what they were asking for through yeah. the entire cyber assurance process and, and building it up for them yeah, yeah. and get, giving them something like they, they obviously they, they'll value uh, and something that you've been part of the puzzle putting together like that I'd imagine that must be where a massive part of job satisfaction comes from um, yeah yeah but that only works if you challenge each other the, customer, yeah, you need to, the client you need, needs to challenge us and we need to challenge them you know every you know all the way through and that's why I think it's important to set that right at the very beginning mm -hmm. I obviously do it in usual Joe-esque style um, <laughs> but I think it's really important for people to know that security is about debating understanding learning from each other accepting we don't know everything we can't always get everything perfect but it's about understanding what we need to achieve and working towards the best result you know, it's. I think one of the other caveats that's always lost in cybersecurity is the fact that there can't be any guarantees until a test starts. That individual does not know how many vulnerabilities they're going to find, how many misconfigurations. You, you just do not know. Yeah, no, no, that's <laughs> a, that's such valuable advice, like right off the bat, right there. Um, it's also it's also worth noting from the perspective of the consultant because uh, something you touched on there Joe is really important not knowing the amount of vulnerabilities or configuration but also not knowing the way in which the client's going to react to things because yeah. often one one thing I've learned over the years I've been doing pen testing and red teaming is that some clients react in different manners so I've, I've had uh, engagements where you raise a critical risk to them and they go right that's it stop all testing and they'll go away and try and patch it and then that's that and they've like they'll 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 maybe have paid for five days of testing. This is day one, so they're they're going to pay for it anyway. But they want to stop and, and sort that out. You got others that are not bothered about the end report, so they they might have a bloodbath, which which QA typically call it, where you've got so many highs and critical risks that it's just there's so much chaos going on. And sometimes that's a, a lack of of understanding from the consultant's perspective and not consolidating kind of root causes, but also from the the client perspective, not understanding that well yeah we've, we're doing this test for you and then it goes back to what you were saying earlier on is how you enrich the kind of understanding of the client because they might be wanting a pen test but are they going to do anything with the output of that or are they going to actually just take the report and be like right okay we've paid 20 grand for this that's that's the budget that we're going to get next year again so we're just spending it otherwise we're going to lose it so mm -hmm. I mean from that perspective Joe how do you handle 
what, what how do you handle that kind of client that doesn't really want a pen test or just spend the money because they need to spend the money um, I, 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 know we're, I know we're going off piste but it's, it's just something of interest <laughs> no absolutely and to be fair it, it also feeds into what I wanted to explain about there being additional facets to the sales role you're absolutely not just a salesperson you're also a project manager you yeah. need to engage and with customers of that nature in some instances you just have to accept it um, I've been in the industry for 16 years as I said and there's one client that always sticks in my mind over the years and it was 20 it was it was 25k every single year and I, every, I, I remember having the conversation and saying just spend it on something else you're just getting the <laughs> same reflect but the the issue for the client was the fact that the cost of remediation was far greater than any of the associated risk or penalties that they would face by simply ticking the box and producing that report each year, which is what they had to do to tick the box for their compliance. So even though the same issues remained every year, um, that was just their process and there was nothing the security person could do about it. You know, that was the same test that had to be run every year. And it was infuriating from from my perspective. Um, Mm. Every consultant that was engaged in the job asked the same question each year. But ultimately, you have to acknowledge that clients have regulations and compliance requirements to meet. And they had to run this test. They had to spend that money each year to be told the same thing. Yeah, it's their choice. Yeah, it's their choice whether to kind of put their head in the sand over it. Um, I, I think that's something that in my career, I th- I can, if I can think of one negative, which I don't like to do, but if I, I can think of one thing that will frustrate me, it would be being the tester in that role and in that situation, uh, knowing that that's the case. But like you say, there's a certain level of the cust- just acceptance, like both on their part and obviously by extension, it would have to be your part as a consultant. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want it to be under any illusion that the customer's position was a unique one, um, Mm. but there was nothing they could do about it. Yeah, You know, I think think there'd be lots of people that can listen to this that can understand the challenges of of the supply chain and Mm. having to utilise, you know, technology or software that doesn't align with various policies or isn't secured to an appropriate fashion. There are so many examples of it, and I feel for every customer that is in that situation, um, and you have to adapt, acknowledge, and report accordingly. Um, but not everyone has the privilege of being able of having you know endless budgets or being able to move out technology. I think there's quite a significant infrastructure, as we all know, that's still built on legacy technology that's going to be very hard to remove. Mm. Yeah, no, of course. And that has to just be accepted and then mitigated accordingly. I've worked with Andy on several projects. Um, I've worked with several other consultants. And the key thing is acknowledging the position and what security advice can you give in best, you know, acknowledging the vulnerabilities, acknowledging the situation that the customer has to implement. And how can they secure that the best? Is it through air gapping, full segregation uh, and managing it that way? Yeah, making the best of a bad situation, I guess, is maybe sometimes going to be the case, just out of necessity, uh, more than anything else. So absolutely, that was a much shorter yeah. way of saying it as well. Yeah, that is, <laughs> it's what what I do. Well, I, I make things sound dumber than they actually are. But, uh, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say dumber. You, you're you're good at simplification and uh, summarization of, of 
complex topics. Well, I am quite simple, so that works. There we go. Uh, Check me using big words. Next, next week, we'll be learning how to Andy's say dog wording. and cat. <laughs> Let's not go too far. Let's take this. Um, so obviously, you mentioned sixteen years. Like that, that's that's a great amount of time. You must have seen like so much stuff within the industry. Uh, so much change as well within that time. Just being with how quick technology moves. But before we kind of go on to, you know, uh, one of our questions will be about those kind of changes. Um, I, I do just want to kind of. Would you be able to talk a little bit about your your, your first role in security? Is that something, um, just a, a little bit about what that role kind of entailed and uh, how it maybe felt kind of getting into the industry and some of those challenges? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my first, when I, I ended up in security by accident, which I quite like because that actually replicates <laughs> most of the technical people that I know in security. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm in sales, I took the same route. So I turned up for a job interview that I thought was for um, something to do with software, shall we say, uh, to keep mm-hmm. it anonymous. That's and I, t- yeah, I turned up for the job interview and they were like, absolutely not. It's for penetration testing. I sat there and thought, what the hell is penetration testing? <laughs> um, <laughs> So they, to be, it was a fantastic interview, went really well and yeah, um, ended up working for a, a great organisation, cutting my teeth primarily, as I said, in, in penetration testing, cold mm-hmm. calling, hitting the phones, account management and very much played to my skills. So I, I, I love talking, as anyone who meets me will know. <laughs> I love talking, but I really enjoy pe- uh, and we- enjoy, enjoy people. <laughs> that could have been very nice. Um, <laughs> we may cut that out. Um, yeah. I, I really enjoy engaging with people. I really enjoy yeah. talking, but I want to help people. I've always wanted to make a difference. Yeah. And I do feel that like within cybersecurity, I've put this in one of my talks, but I feel like a mini superhero, like I'm changing the world, just one sensible security question at a time, whether it's switching, you know, a new IT manager on to, you know, the right sort of security testing they should be doing to baseline or running a security awareness session to, you know, to individuals just advising on, you know, IoT, passwords. It's just to make a difference. And when people come and speak to you afterwards and and tell you the impact that you've made with regards to going and putting laser protection in for the children on social media or understanding a potential risk factor that they hadn't considered for the business before it just it gives me that warm fuzzy feeling Mm. no no, absolutely (laughs) that's why we're here i think everyone we've had on this uh, podcast to be honest uh, would be the exact same level of geeky um but i think it's that kind of passion that you need to have for it not only just to keep your finger on the pulse as we mentioned before about how complex it is and how quick changing everything is but um but uh, obviously at the end of the uh, the client probably needs to feel like they're being looked after like um and even the smallest change can make a massive difference if it's not just the one person then a full organization like so uh no absolutely uh, that, that, that's massively important um so um did you have any kind of education or higher education um but before you moved in or was it quite a, a speculative um when you applied for that job was it just like just see what happens or did, did, had you been training towards something within security at that point absolutely not um <laughs> i'd actually been working so i've been working towards my mvq level three in health and social care 
So I was studying things like psychology, sociology, and I absolutely wanted to go down the roots of changing the world, helping people in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked, uh, well, just to, again, to give a little bit of context um, to the listeners, um, mm-hmm. but I, I was a young mum, um, so I had my, my daughter when I was 17. I had to, I've worked absolutely every day of my life. I was in college studying for my MVQ and also working three jobs. So I was working in a care home for the elderly. I was working with a youth group. I was volunteering with young youth offenders. Oh, and I also had a Saturday job in a hotel. So Jeez. all the... <laughs> so graft. That is graft right there. <laughs> well, yeah, and I was... Uh, yeah, and it, it was tough going. So I remember in my final year, I kept falling asleep in class. So I was 21 <laughs> and I just kept falling asleep. But people left me because they knew I was working the night shift and picking yeah. my daughter up. Um, But one of the things that really resonated on all the roles that I had prior to that was the limitations that some of the systems that put on people. I found it very, very challenging working with young youth offenders and the elderly and, you know, people were, you know, people, you know, do pass away. You know, they're they're elderly. That's why, you know, they're they're in those sort of care home environments. And it was very challenging. And I... Mm. I didn't feel I could do it anymore, and I mean that in the nicest possible way because no, there are some there are some amazing people that go out and do this, the, the caring jobs every single day, um, and I did. I, I, that's, I, it stemmed from loving working with people, loving talking, wanting to do something different, and I, I just applied for the job because it sounded interesting. If that makes mm-hmm. sense, it's. When it, the job kind of was promoted for the software was helping people, helping organisations do things. So that appealed to my nature of wanting to help. Um, and once I've come into the role, that's absolutely, I think, been one of my key successes. Um, because one of the other things through engagements, I absolutely make sure, yes, everything is going well for the engagement, but I also check on my techie. Every single people. time, absolutely, yeah. absolutely yeah. the most. Imp- well, I say the most important thing, but it, it, it's something that certainly shone through in a lot of engagements I worked with on Joe. It worked on with Joe. It's being a, being checked in on because I'm I'm very guilty of just staying up and not eating and not sleeping. <laughs> and yep, you do seem to forget those basic human things, Andy. Like sometimes I do think you're a robot. <laughs> but like, I beat all the captures, so you can't prevent them. <laughs> No, that's it. And looking after people, and, and I, we've talked about it in the podcast before. And as someone that recently came into the industry, having been techy in the sense of being enthused by technology, using it in my day to day life, uh, but not working with it, um, and then uh, kind of coming into the industry, kind of from there, um, I had a lot of kind of customer service skills, a lot of people skills, um, a lot of just general life skills coming in here that are of massive advantage to me, like uh, just in a different setting. Um, probably very similar to a lot of the stuff you've discussed there, Joe. So very interesting hearing that you've came from that background. So I don't think we've had anyone necessarily on the podcast that has. So it's a really interesting perspective. Um, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and I'm quite proud of it as well. There was, I've got a mentor who has been a bit of a champion and I remember the first time I got my my first major promotion and I'd had a review meeting and the conversation went something along the lines of, Joe, you've been absolutely amazing. You know, you're kind of top of the board. You know, have you, have you got no aspirations to move into X, Y, Z role? 
And I kept, my reply was, absolutely. I just refuse to stick my head up anybody's arse and I can't go out <laughs> for beers after work. <laughs> because I was a mum. I could go in early because I could drop my kid, my kid off and my daughter off. Um, but I couldn't stay late. I couldn't go out for beers. I couldn't go out golfing at weekends. I couldn't go to those networking events. And I, I feel it did impact. Yeah. Um, but that meant within three months I was promoted. <laughs> Well, that's it. You put the work in, the focus, <laughs> like, and you tend to get kind of, you know, hopefully if all goes well, you get recognised for it. I, th- I think sometimes you do. I think security, again, a double-edged sword, sometimes it's about who you know, not what you know. Absolutely. I, I think yeah. it can be a lot of tasks in security. I mean, we, we often focus on the technical tasks, but there's a lot of areas that are thankless and it can be down to rather there's a lot of people to, who you know rather than what you know because there's a lot of incredibly technically skilled talented people out there but they're just not being hired because they, they don't speak to people or they don't know things and or they don't not, not that they don't know things but they, they don't know the right people to speak to and that can be I think that can probably be the same in the, the account management perspective because the, the like the people people always sing the praises of the technical skilled people, but they often don't sing the praises of those that are involved in the full life cycle of like development of clients and development of like an environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think it's it's not just the development of clients. I think with regards to the process of a test, I absolutely after doing. Uh, well I haven't mentioned but after moving on to doing my uni course I've I've got a whole new perspective and appreciation for techies for battling with virtual machines configurations and (laughs) it only it can take one thing out of place for things to not work and it reversed my perspective on how much time we should really be spending on the preparation and the scope and the the amount of time Mm. and value that we, you know, customers don't put not because they don't want to. Usually, because time is of the essence. There's a variety of factors that can play into it. But I would like to stress that that is so key to it. Making sure that you've got the context right. You've risk assessed the project. What if it doesn't go ahead on time? What if the scope does change? What mm-hmm. if we find something significant that is going to take a month to remediate, and you can't remediate within a week, and you want to go live? What happens yeah. if somebody, especially you know, with COVID, what happens if if, if one of the key stakeholders is off sick, have we got somebody that can cover and provide the additional access supports that our team needs? We all mm. have to be very fluid, and there's so much more in, to that than just you know a brief account management call. You can, it's n- there's so many more facets to it. There's so much more of a process to it, and I actually took quite a lot of it from reviewing all of the different pen testing methodologies. Mm-hmm. They were really useful. Yeah, yeah I've done, recently done a, a fair amount of reading on them, um, just in that kind of preparation for, for future courses. Um, and yeah, it certainly it shows you the kind of the thing that the, the methodologies have taught me is the kind of start to finish, you know, of, of that entire process of doing a pen test. And it's taught I'm not a pen tester, so it's taught me a lot about that. I can see why you'd be able to take a lot of value from just even reading through those, just to see that kind of start to finish, and then applying the stuff that you know, like you say, evaluating risk of 
what's going to stop this project going ahead properly and on time and efficiently. Um, yeah, I'd imagine that must have been really valuable. I just want to take it back to something you said a moment ago, because um, it's obviously relevant to talking about kind of education, which is obviously a big part of what we talk about in WeGCast. Uh, you mentioned university. Um, do you want to tell us a lot about, about your university life, Joe? Oh, absolutely. Again, I'm, I'm, I've said absolutely way too often, so I'm going to try and stop saying it. <laughs> absolutely keep saying it. It's an absolutely <laughs> great word. Um, you're asking such great questions. Very, very proud of university. So, yep, I'm currently studying my Master's for Information Security with the Royal Holloway via Distance Learning. My, I'm, I'm very honoured that my employer is sponsoring me to do that. And although... It, it was. A, I thought it was a fabulous, and it still is, a fabulous idea. I really didn't understand the amount of time and dedication that studying <laughs> and working full-time and trying to look after a family requires. Yep. So I'd like to give a shout-out to absolutely anybody that does any form of study as well as work. I mean, as well as doing any... But honestly, when you're trying to juggle so many different facets, which... Everybody in cybersecurity does. How you hold down a full-time job, stay upskilled, do research, write blogs, write I have absolutely no idea because it's a little bit nuts. <laughs> it really, really is. It's like living a second life sometimes, like uh, two, two lives concurrently at the same time. And that's, for me, without a family there, you know, as in... I mean, I, like my own kids and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, but it's common, uh, so, it's common yeah, practice in cybersecurity, and yep. all the uni, the 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 modules with uni have been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the amount of context that they have managed to provide from behind the scenes has been great. I do feel that there's a challenge between the disconnect of academia versus reality. Mm-hmm. And I think when you've been in the industry for so long and kind of looked at everything, I've been looking at everything theoretically, if you think about it. I know every facet of a, of a test. I, I know mm-hmm. the methodology. I know this. I just don't deliver it. Yep. So I do already know the theory. And I think it's very difficult for academia to keep up with the pace of reality and technology. Well, this yeah. is the thing about university in particular, like obviously the, the, just the way that courses are generated and delivered, like they're probably planned, you know, you, you plan it one year and the idea would be probably to roll that out for the next three, f- four years, maybe, maybe, maybe less if they're quite a progressive university, but technology changes every year for the, for this industry. Like how, how do you keep courses relevant and up to date and giving people skills that they can immediately use going into the industry and not just to be told oh you've learned that that's already out of date relearn (laughs) i mean like that sounds challenging yeah and i think it's all the various frameworks that are available as well because now there are yes there are the standard and there are the international frameworks but there's all those subsections those individual ones and i think since iot again has grown there are mm-hmm. so many more regulations and coverages on that area that aren't covered by some of the syllabus. Mm-hmm. So it's just been quite interesting, really. Um, but I have I've thoroughly enjoyed it, absolutely enjoyed it. If you'd have asked me th- four years ago, or if you'd have, have spoken to me four years ago and said, Joe, you're going to be studying for information security, you're going to take a pen testing theory and practical module, you're going to be building your own test lab and running scripts and analysing Wireshark I'd have thought you were crazy <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so what was what, what, what how, how did it come about that you've chosen 
to to go into university from being in a position where you would have thought it'd be crazy for you to do that to then to then do it what was the drive what what pushed you to to go for it well it's quite personal to be honest so again a mentor of mine was the reason that i ended up doing the masters because i was signing up for evening college courses so mm-hmm. i was signing up for kind of project management courses networking courses you know at the local college and mm-hmm. i've been put on the waiting list and they would suggested that i go for my masters and i thought they were absolutely crazy <laughs> again imposter syndrome why would i ever of course why would he ever do that? Because I'd actually left high school with no GCSEs. I didn't, um, due to personal circumstances, I didn't have the the typical upbringing and I didn't finish high school. It wasn't that I was unintelligent. I had plenty of offers on the table. I was um, one of the first females to be offered apprenticeships in engineering with some major manufacturers because I'd actually gone down the engineering route when I first Mm -hmm. left school. My first work experience was done in the garage. I was working as a mechanic. Um, so I, I kind of had that initial passion back then. Yeah, the technical kind of passion. Do you mean? Yeah, but for building, understanding how things worked. Mm-hmm. I loved mm-hmm. understanding how things worked. But because I had a, because I had never finished, because I, I had never had a formal qualification, I was really, really excited to do that and to also have somebody yeah. else have that faith in you and to recommend that forward. So I did, I applied. Um, I was successful in getting access to the course. I've passed my exams. Some I've done yes. very yeah, some I've done very well in, some I've scraped. Mm-hmm. However, I also know where my strengths lie versus my weaknesses, and maths yep. is one of them, and cryptography oh. cryptography is mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, trust me, I know the feeling, right? I will happily be uh, happily admit that those were the most challenging subjects and continue to be, and no doubt always will be. I'm not very maths orientated, and I never have been. Uh, gradually, it's getting better, but no, no doubt that's a challenge for me as well, Joe. Yeah, the concepts, you know, and the framework again is quite easy to understand. The, the basic transitions, etc. Yep. Absolutely with cryptography, but I'm quite, I'm kind of glad that I, I got that one passed. Really yeah. looking forward to my final year uh, working on my dissertation, but it's been an absolute honour and it's been an honour to engage with other people that are at university who are a lot younger than me and have a lot of energy, people who are a lot older than me and have different levels of experience. So I, I just wanted to give the shout out to anybody who is doing any form of, you know, any form of study, trying to work better themselves because it is just such a challenge understanding yeah. what to study, what the right thing to study is. And, you know, I was very honoured to be given the opportunity through my mentor and to get the opportunity to do the course that I'm doing. Um, yeah, that's yeah. A, a, no, I, it's honestly fantastic. I think um, whilst university, um, for, for me as a great example, like, you know, I've been there, I've been through university, I did really well with it and I came out briefly got a job in the industry and then found that the course maybe wasn't as useful as maybe I'd thought or so I thought at the time because the thing is it's the skill of learning it's the skill of you know like taking stuff you don't know and running with it and then trying to get competent with it you know at a relatively quick pace because uni is quite fast paced especially up at masters so um like say massive shout out to anybody doing that Uh, but even if you've done a degree and you've maybe not felt it's got you the job uh they might have wanted you never know what the skills you learn there will take you in the future like like you say you yeah. went out there and you've smashed a master's course. So. One of one of the key Massive. things about uni in general, and it's something worth uh, like people that listen to podcasts and, and kind of 
it's not necessarily about the topic. Yes, the topic does help, and if you're doing a course, like if you're doing a master's in security, that's great, and and I'm not not downplaying at all. But for those people that may, maybe come from non-standard backgrounds, or or they have a degree that's maybe not even directly relevant to to what they're doing right now, doing a university course actually teaches you how to learn and teaches yeah, you how right. to write. Yeah. And those are two very key things in our industry, regardless of yep. what area you work in. If it's uh, offensive security, defensive, client enrichment, client engagement, social engineering, ICS, IoT, uh, GRC, governance, risk and compliance, all of these things, the, the key fundamentals are if you can learn things and if you can convey it, you, those are two skills that will feed in regardless of where you are. I mean, yep. the previous Fair guest anything. that we had on, uh, Morgan, she... Her degrees in, uh, I think it's English literature. I'm, I think mm-hmm. I've probably butchered that. Sorry, right. Morgan. Uh, mm-hmm. But she she was talking about how that she thought that wasn't going to get her a, a route into security. She didn't even envisage being in security. But it's just having those fundamental uh, skills that are they're they're great. They do they do serve you for life. Yeah, or finding an alternative role. They always say, you know if you're passionate in an industry. It doesn't matter whether you're the cleaner or the cook or whatever you're doing in that industry. You're doing, you know, you get an insight, you get an exposure. It's not always the typical roles. Um, I've taken a completely different route into cybersecurity. I feel like I have a completely different position to most technical people. But I add value in a completely different way. And going back yeah. and learning the frameworks is just adding further weight. I think previously, Yes, I, I, I know I can explain things very, very well. I think by going back and learning the additional frameworks, I understand the weight and the context of what businesses have got to do and why, and that adds more weight to my arguments when I'm talking to them and trying to help them understand why they've got to do certain things or mm. having the ability to listen to what they've got to achieve and go and re- research that standard and, and apply the relevant context because nothing's black and white and some standards can be quite rigid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. And like, see, that, see, just even speaking about this just now, and uh, I think your background's absolutely fascinating, Joe, and I'm really happy that you've shared it with us because I'm sure there's people out there that probably in a similar position maybe have had a difficult time at school, you know, maybe haven't left with the qualification they want, like, and they might be in a job that they might not particularly want or if they maybe not got the career you know, that they want. Um, and uh, to hear stories of people in that position absolutely fucking smashing it <laughs> like you know just now and having all these different opportunities and uh, going through that I, I think it's really really quite vital uh, for them to hear that uh, to be enthused so uh, and it's awesome um, what I was going to say is um, just taking it maybe back to kind of job roles um, would you be able to kind of talk us through what a kind of typical day would be like at a very high level for you um, and, and your current role Joe? I can certainly try. I'd say no. I'd certainly say no two days are ever the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good though. Like that keeps it keeps it fresh. It certainly does. It certainly does. So a typical day will start from whenever the first email or telephone call will land. I have a start time that I log in for, but it generally never works that way. <laughs> I usually try to start each day by checking on the work that I've, I've got happening that on that day. So mm-hmm. quick message out to my techies to make sure that they're doing okay. Quick check-in uh, with other internal colleagues. 
ready to, to pre prepare for the day just to mm -hmm. make sure everything's on track there's there's no fires i need to go and deal with and when i say fires that could literally mean anything from you know a client project has delayed due to a third party having you know not being able to roll out in time through to any specific form of challenge of you know we, we um just try to it's very hard to think of within the security industry sometimes because i, I certainly don't want to um disclose anything i shouldn't do but no, that's just, of course, but... yeah it's just on a general basis you're, you're looking for things that you need to deal with whether mm -hmm. you know there's a, a particular test that isn't going to plan you know there may be access control or a change mechanism that hasn't been implemented appropriately the techie yeah. may not be able to get started how's that project time going so check on all of those things first so you can make sure that everybody else is ready to rock and roll mm -hmm. following on from that it's moving through all the various opportunities and engagements that are ahead whether that's looking at web application testing whether that's jumping into a secure by design project call that could be dealing with scoping it could be dealing with a contract could be dealing with um internal colleagues that need to have a quick chat about a particular scope or issue so my day varies quite ver from actual technical scoping to introductory sales calls to finance management to contractual management to scheduling to problem solving with techies <laughs> i think is probably, uh, <laughs> uh, the best way of putting it also, making through when you're wrapping up for the day, or test debriefs been delivered accordingly? Are there any follow-up actions to be taken? Are all reports, proposals, invoices, etc., being delivered on time? Is everybody happy? Which I know is not a very technical term, but it it seems to work for me. It makes a massive difference if they're happy anyway for the jo job they'll be doing and you know the kind of work they're putting out. So uh, you know, yeah, well, it's like I said. So. Everybody's happy though. I need to keep the finance team happy. I need to keep the internal <laughs> team happy. I need to keep the techie happy. I need to keep the client happy. The client's internal team's happy because it, as a conduit, although you may be engaging with the requirement with the technical people, you're also managing the legal teams, the accounts teams. There's all the additional processes that sit behind that. So you're spinning plates that have spinning plates on top of them, like. <laughs> And making sure that none of them fall. Oh, well, to be it's managing the end-to-end -end process, making oh, sure, so. yeah, making sure the project's end-to-end -end is delivered successfully, and every facet of that is done properly. Whether it's the invoicing, whether it's payments, whether it's scoping, whether it's delivery, whether it's the reports, I see mm -hmm. it as my overarching responsibility to make sure that everything is done to a high standard, and everybody is happy. Does that come with a? To me personally, that sounds like massive pressure. Like, um, not not just in the sense that there's so much at any given opportunity by the sounds of it that could go wrong that you're then going to have to time manage and make sure you know, like you say, start to finish, you get it right. Um, do you do you find do you thrive on the pressure? Um, and is that something you've had to get better at, or would you say that's a core skill that you've had from the beginning? absolutely something i've developed over time and i don't mean to use the word again but that's the, the main response <laughs> completely mm -hmm. i'm always learning i'm always developing there's always ways of understanding how you could have adapted or reacted to a situation better yeah so day-to-day -day, interesting incredibly interesting and as, as you said you are balancing multiple plates at once so it's it's just a case of making sure they don't all fall and crash so 
stepping through, and we've got a preset of questions here, but stepping through them um, off off topic from security for for a second. We've heard you do stand up comedy, Joe. Uh, how did you get into that? And tell us a little a little bit about it. For sure. If if you don't mind, that is. <laughs> you, you can tell us to fuck off. First. <laughs> <laughs> I'll save that for later. Stand up comedy was. <laughs> A crazy decision after a very stressful day of back-to-back meetings, calls, and I was in a black cab coming back from the train station. I was in Manchester, travelling back, and I got an email through from the Frog and Bucket Comedy Club, and it was about a comedy course, and I was so depressed (laughs) that I signed up, because I kind of thought... No, I mean, let's. I use. I've always used humour. I think most people, certainly in our industry, use humour to get through the darkest of times. Otherwise, we wouldn't still be here. Trench humour. Yeah, absolutely, and I like that. So for for me, it was. I I've always thought I was funny, especially after a few beers. <laughs> Can vouch. Yeah, comedy's been a big part of my life ever since I was growing up. I do, I love to laugh. It's the one thing, no matter how crappy you're feeling, you make a crack an inappropriate joke, your colleague can say something, and it just makes the world a better place. So it fed into that a little bit, and I think it also feeds into a little bit of a release. We are also politically correct and that's not about against being politically correct but I think sometimes there's so much humour in what we do and who we are as human beings and the relationships that we have and it's embracing that and embracing those funny sides of who we are and what we are yep. and it's just nice and I'll be honest I was absolutely terrified if it wasn't for the experience that I developed in public speaking I absolutely wouldn't have been able to wouldn't have been able to do it, but I signed up for the course, you know, a couple of years after I'd been speaking and went down, did some sessions, and from there, I was pretty sure, well, it was reconfirmed that I am actually funny. <laughs> so I, I decided to continue doing it, and, you know, no matter how old you get, I would a- absolutely recommend going and following a passion, doing something crazy, something that's outside your comfort zone. Go and find an open mic night to go and sing or play your instrument or read a poem or do some stand-up comedy, whatever it is you need to do. I've never felt so amazing as that some of the times I've been up on stage doing stand-up comedy. It's mm-hmm. not something I ever imagined doing. I've literally spent hours working on on some of the some of the jokes because you do have to be careful with humor i don't think people realize sometimes how how much work can go into it i'm I'm, I'm not billy Connolly. i can't just do it on the fly and i think in this day and age you you do have to be careful of the various boundaries that are out there although comedy can cross it there are still lines you know there are still rules that need to be followed so yeah it's absolutely a release it's something that i enjoy working on and it allows you to let out a little bit of a dark side um i did do a comedy roast quite recently which was really really fun (laughs) i felt awful afterwards but i also really really? enjoyed it well it was a it was you know that double-edged sword again and uh, where you secretly really enjoyed doing something and was like Shit, I hope they're talking well. <laughs> well, if you're talking about the same comedy roast that we, we had the couple of, well, it was last week or something, I, I'd say, I mean, there, there was certainly everyone that was involved 
I think enjoyed it. I, 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 assuming you're referring to that and not another one, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> we uh, we had a comedy roast last Friday, and it was a really good laugh. Um, but yeah, there there were very personable uh, jokes in there, and it was good <laughs> because the the people that were involved were very much on the receiving end, and all have a very similar sense of humour. Where some of the jokes were um, questionably dark than others, uh, but still great. So. And what, so one of the things we agreed at the start of the podcast was that we weren't going to have any inside jokes or anything, which is fine because it's with this. Yeah, fuck it, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it doesn't count as an inside joke. Like honestly, having the confidence to go up there and do comedy as well because comedy is quite unique in the sense of everyone has a unique sense of humour. Like, and trying to get something to land, I guess you know, uh, across an entire crowd and kind of keep them going along sounds terrifying to me from a public speaking standpoint. So uh, I can appreciate people that go up and do it. Um, Would you say... um, Would you say that you take some of the stuff from your stand-up comedy experience um, and take it into your day job, would you say? uh, Or vice versa? I'd say both were applicable. Mm -hmm. I think my sense of humour developed in the workplace (laughs) (laughs) and I think I took skills adapted in the workplace that were absolutely taken to comedy that interjected more of my personality, Mm -hmm. I think would be a fair way of putting it. I think one of the more interesting things is if you're attempting to do any form of uh, technical stand-up comedy, making puns that aren't factually correct you do get consultants coming to you afterwards going you do realise that uh, you know the the bionic beaver is not actually bleeding edge and I'm like yeah it just sounds funny though that's it that's that's because people are cunts though some some people are just cunts about things it's it's comedy then it's not a technical lecture it's not, but I appreciate the feedback because ultimately, if you think of the amount and range of personalities that we have in cyber and technology anyway, um, I actually took that on board. You know, as something that I can potentially crack about a joke about in the future, I can tag it onto my bionic beaver. <laughs> Which is such a fantastic <laughs> phrase. <laughs> but again, you know, the terminology within our industry, again, is fantastic phenomenal terrifying and disgusting on different levels mm. no this is true like disgustingly you great is <laughs> <laughs> i do always find it quite funny like you're, you're sitting there you're, you're using a tool or something uh you're looking at the just like usernames and out of nowhere it's like this tool was made by Firefart, and it's like oh well. <laughs> right <laughs> And this is probably floating about corporate networks and stuff as well, right? but no one's looking at the source code. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I think there is definitely, I think, as you say, kind of, or I suppose I said earlier, but we're talking about kind of trench humour. Um, yeah. I love nothing more than when I'm talking to a partner or someone we work with closely, you know, someone I recognise the name of, or maybe just someone I spoke to last year that I had a good rapport with, you know, and we're all super rammed in, like, IT and security at the moment, like, it's not really let up for us, even through COVID, so, like, you're just talking about how busy you are, and, you know, and there is a lot of trench humour, and, uh, uh, a lot of kind of taking what could be looked as negatives and cracking jokes about it just to get everybody through the day. So I'd imagine having you on the team's calls, Joe, uh, must be a, a saving grace for a lot of people uh, who are having bad days just so they do get a laugh in from time to time. 
I'd like to think so. I have, but I got some feedback once from a client who said, Joe is an absolute ray of sunshine. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's worse things for people to say about you. Put it that way, but... Absolutely. I was going to say, hasn't been on my bad side, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> having, having Do you ever seen... have to unleash your bad side? But, I was uh... going to say, having seen both sides, I'd say that you are a ray of sunshine. But the, the, the great thing, I mean, talking about calls and things, the great thing about having like Friday calls and things is, is great because they go on for hours or some, sometimes they go on for hours and it's just having a, a, a degree of baseline humour where everyone gets through and it does go back to the trench humour aspect of things where we are talking utter drivel but at the same time just cracking quite hilariously dark jokes but everyone gets them and they're all sort of they, they resonate with everyone I'm not saying that everyone needs to have a dark sense of humour but I think as as an industry as a whole we do we you we do generally have quite a dark dark baseline sense of humor yeah but i think we have and i find this when you're talking to friends and family where you can't openly talk about certain things and you, you see reactions and it's trying to trying to think of the best way of explaining it the amount of knowledge and understanding that we have about the practices, the risks and the reality of what goes on in the cybersecurity world is slightly terrifying and not everybody yeah. can have the same perspective. Mm. Sometimes I feel like, you know, we've taken the... Which pill did they take in the Matrix? <laughs> you, uh, you can't take right. that... Been dropping yeah. acid, basically, is what we're saying. <laughs> the red pill. The red no, pill. I'm not saying. No, I know exactly what you're saying. I know exactly what you're yeah, saying. I'm not saying everybody in cybersecurity is dropping acid. What I'm saying <laughs> is that everybody in cybersecurity has has that additional knowledge. We know about those unsupported systems. We know about critical national infrastructure and how it's supported. We know yeah. the impact that these unsecured IoT devices are having. We understand the challenges of. The, the different levels of technology, regulatory demands versus budget budgetary availability, nothing matches up. Yeah, no, that's it. And do you know what the thing is? I know this is the thing for me that um, probably scares me the most about security. And the more that I learn, um, and it's hard to ignore, is that like nothing seems safe. Like, and even companies that have done their best to secure their stuff there's still always the chance that it's going to go wrong. Like, so to have that constant potential dread floating there and just really just doing your best to fight against it, like um, even on a personal level, like even just understanding how easy it is for passwords to get cracked, you know, and hashes to go randomly floating about the internet, um, you know, for, from leaks and stuff. And even if you're not thinking about your own security, like I'm thinking about my mum and dad's security. I'm thinking about, you know, even my grand's got an iPad. Like, you know, everybody that I care about that maybe isn't aware, or is blissfully unaware of this stuff, much like the Matrix. Right? You know, and I do worry for them because I won't have my time to necessarily get around all of them to do a health check, make sure they're okay as much as I should probably do that. And maybe so that, we'll do after COVID. But. This is going to get me a lot of hate, but I've never seen the Matrix, ever. <laughs> Jeez, man, I'm tempted to cancel this podcast right now. And <laughs> I've, literally I've, seen, down with it. <laughs> I've seen The Matrix Reloaded, but I've never seen the original what? Matrix. Oh my god! Yeah, I, this is the th this is something that makes me laugh quite a lot uh, because people go on about great films, and I before COVID uh, was a thing. I used to go to the cinema all the time and go and see loads of films. 
but there's a lot of films in the kind of security industry that we associate that I've never seen. Like I've never seen hackers, I've never seen sneakers, I've never seen any of these. I've seen war games, but like you're not really a big film guy. Like for obviously from even just us talking, like um, yeah, you've never seemed to kind of uh, overly. There's hacking in it. I must kind of go see it, sort of thing. So, which is obviously perfectly fine. But for the love of God, go go watch the Matrix, man. But go, go, go watch the Matrix, like. This is this is when I this is when I get sacked like, from my new great, job because like, they're like, you haven't seen the Matrix, fuck off. Like, I would warrant it and endorse it to be quite frank. Uh, what but, me getting sacked for not seeing the Matrix? Fuck. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it should be a first question on any form of interview, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, <laughs> out of interest, just kind of taking it back to the industry, I suppose. Uh, we got a couple more questions that are quite interesting that I'd like to kind of get get your take on Joe so um obviously you mentioned 16 years of experience like that's an absolute wealth of experience that I'd kill for because the one thing you can't rush is time you know you can rush through certifications all you want but you know it, it takes time to get experience so what what's the biggest differences you've noticed in the industry from when you started to, to at this moment wow <laughs> <laughs> Well, well Andy, hasn't, Andy hasn't seen The Matrix. That's the biggest change. <laughs> we've been through that, Andy. Like We've been through that. Like, I'm disappointed. I'm not even mad. I'm just disappointed. Well, I, re- I remember when I first started, I was accused of making PCI up on a phone call, which was quite interesting. <laughs> so you've just made this up. It's another thing you've all made up just to make money. I was like, it's, oh, n- it's not me. I haven't personally made this up. Um, <laughs> I'll send you some information, sincere apologies. I do feel that organisations are being forced to take security more seriously. I Mm -hmm. think some organisations are proactively taking it more seriously. I don't think it's being seen as one of the foundation cornerstones that it should be seen as from an end-to-end. I think you have to have a solid foundation of security if you're going to survive as a business. Mm-hmm. because of the amount of investment resource and time that it takes to have good security and yeah. as you've said no matter how good a security you can have it can be compromised you can spend hundreds of thousands of pounds on a security product that's compromised in your supply chain you were trying to do the right thing do you see what i mean there's solar woods. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no escape do you see what I... and i think that the analogy of you know a security professional has to prevent against every single attack an attacker only has to be successful once. Yeah, yeah, that exactly that. That's why blue teams just absolutely terrifying. But also sounds like it can be very rewarding and also just so important as well. Like um, being that defense. Like um, so, no, that, that that's interesting. So the level of seriousness has had to. You know, I, I guess increase in time I guess it's maybe is that maybe where some of the budgetary problems comes in I think we've talked to a couple of guests about this where you know internet security and traditional businesses anyway wasn't necessarily the focus or there or looked at you know as much as it should have done at the beginning um, is that a trend that maybe continues with maybe older companies maybe uh, banks seem pretty on the ball is one thing I always think of fucking when I banks think of no, no, is that no, wrong no, no. Like, it's totally wrong banks don't give oh a God. fuck about security most of the time I mean <laughs> they do they do but like they don't spend as much money as they should on security and often they've got the worst legacy tech um, the companies that spend more money on security tend to be more modern companies and those that are involved in like global man I'd say global manufacturing software companies spend more on security than banks do 
That's yeah, it. I guess that's kind of my part. That's going to be the hell that I die on. <laughs> so I, I, I guess I'd plead the, the fifth. I think, it, again, it's, <laughs> I think it's organisation dependent, situational dependence, budgetary dependent. I, th- I think there are way too many factors... And I think I've had too many different varied experiences, as you've said, Andy, from major conglomerates through to SMEs who yeah. have had varying levels of security. I don't think you can pinpoint it in any one way. I think one mm. thing that I think I'd really like to touch on is the fact that we touch on on the testing and the technological aspects. And we a lot of people in industry talk about kind of things being the strongest link or the weakest link, and people are very much kind of part of that. Mm-hmm. I've always had a perception that no matter what research and reading that I've done, that people are neither the strongest or the weakest link, but they're the the most regular link. So you have people developing the software, you have people purchasing the software, people integrating the software, people running the software, people using the software. And ultimately, people are the biggest thing in the chain. I don't know whether they're the strongest or the weakest, but they're they're inputted at every single part of the process. Yeah. And I think they are generally un- undervalued and overlooked with regards to kind of secure secure development training, for example. Most customers I speak to when I talk to them about it, you know, like, when was the last time you released your development team for a week to go and upskilling training? And the answer is n- never. They don't yeah. have the time. They do e-learning. They're doing time around in- individual projects. This is just a small example. But again, so the, you've got your developers that are creating the software that aren't in invested in or don't have the time or the resource to upskill then you have your it departments and you and your inst- installers uh, yep <sighs> sorry the ones no, that implement the system i was looking for the word implementers <laughs> the ones that implement the system the project managers and then the, the, all those facets move forward it's in, really near near impossible for businesses to give all of that time and investment to all of those individuals as well as running all of the day-to-day projects making sure everything runs so i think i do also bring when i'm dealing with customers or just any engagement is a level of appreciation as to the challenge that's at hand for everybody at every single stage and the amount of risks that are brought in that are potentially unacknowledged I think the people within the chain, we, we are working on the technology, we're doing the testing, we have all these frameworks that are secure in that. But the people at each stage, although they're included, I don't know, it's not cohesive as understanding the people end-to-end in the process. Yeah, I think on the topic of people, I mean, the phrase, the people are the weakest link in the chain, is both wrong and yeah. right. So I was speaking to a client last week about this and he put it perfectly it isn't people that are the weakest link it's education we as security professionals we we fail in our role not because of technology but because we fail to educate and fail to teach how to improve things because you can throw money at a problem but it's not going to fix it if you don't educate people how to effectively like spend it or effectively well effectively source it if you you could throw a billion pounds at a problem and still be hilariously insecure if you haven't educated your staff in an appropriate yeah. manner. Yeah, and I think a really good example of that is procurement. So you could be looking yes. to create, you know, procure a new system. It's got new connectivity. They don't understand the right risk and threat questions to ask regarding the security of that device. It's purchased, implemented on the network, and before you know it, you've got a huge risk, huge vulnerability in a three-year contract you can't get out of. 
because procurement weren't educated it wasn't run through security first there are so many challenges in that area where it can break down yeah and uh, down to the education point as well often it's not security that's at fault it's the understanding of risk and yeah. risk is such a common language like, we talk about security a lot but one of my good friends who I'd like to get on the podcast at some point uh, Chris Sullivan who's he, he's, a, he's been a CISO in many banks and things and he always speaks about how security is, is, a, is a dirty word and it is because if you say security to people who are outside of the, the industry they don't really care they're not really bothered it's more of a hindrance to them than it is a, a but if you convey risk to them and you say well actually the risk of you doing this action could cost you hundreds of pounds or it could cost you your identity or it could cost you x y and z if you use a password of welcome one for example and it's easy for you to remember but the risk of you doing that is you could lose your identity you could lose access to your emails or dialing it down to something really really basic for for the the muggles of the world the non-technical the computer user non-technicals of the world um if you if you dial it down to if you have a weak password i can get in and i can view your facebook or i can view your linkedin or i can view your twitter or i can access your emails or i can access your bank and it's contextualizing things to a, a kind of a very low level or a high i suppose a very high level that normal people can understand yeah, it's, the, it's, the, it's getting that across is to such the, the the wide degree of people in the workforce everywhere. So you're literally talking everybody, like you know what I mean, like every walk of life, like every age group, like all these people are using these systems, and the challenge is obviously making sure that they're given the right knowledge to keep themselves safe, you know, and keep the businesses they work for safe, um, but trying to get that across to like such a wide group of people must be a massive challenge um out of interest what kind of uh what advice would you give joe to somebody a company that was looking to help improve uh, their staff security like you know their their knowledge like is there any kind of general kind of plan or advice you'd give for that for upskilling people across the board to not do things like click phishing links, for example? If I had an answer for people not clicking phishing links, I think I'd be a very rich woman. <laughs> yeah, I bet. That's <laughs> <laughs> the biggest, doesn't it? But... Yeah, I think there's a degree. So th there's so many different types of, of training out there, and I think it's really hard to get the balance between helping people to understand the risk and the impact driving through fear whilst also understanding the positive implications as to how they can protect the family, secure themselves further yeah. and prevent, um, as you said, you know, the, the pre, um, protect, pre, prevent, protect, defend kind of analogies aren't generally known out in, in the wider world as such. They don't have the same little cycles that they follow with their knowledge base. Mm. No. I think he's about making it relatable, like Andy said. So whenever I've delivered yeah. cybersecurity awareness training, the first thing I do is interject my family into it and I talk about my daughter and my son, the use of social media, how technology has evolved. You know, when no. I was growing up, the most advanced technology I managed to get my hands on was a, a leopard print pager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I spent 10 minutes trying to explain the concept of a pager to my daughter. It's 10 minutes of my life I'm never going to get back. <laughs> but we we didn't have the same risk landscape and the risk profile that people That's today that. have. No. I wasn't going to suffer the same issues playing Chucky Egg, Chucky Egg on my Amstrad, you know. Yeah. 
it's a cut and helping yeah. people to understand because the people in the room will understand what an Amstrad or a Sega Mega Drive was. Some of my younger audience might not know what it was, but they'll know some of the the newer devices, like the PS4s, the Xboxes. People have got yeah. how technology has evolved and how attitudes and behaviours towards it need to change. Because I am quite passionate, as you, as you can see, about helping my clients, understanding what they mm -hmm. can do. But I do kind of take the firm line that there's an element of accountability for the end user because ultimately if they are not understanding about protecting themselves for me well you understand how to lock your car you understand how to lock your front door you understand yeah. how to shut your windows before you go away and i know the house analogy is one that we've used for years in cyber security about protection but it's absolutely relevant you know if you lost your keys to your house or your car or you thought they'd been stolen you would go and change your locks Unfortunately, you don't have any controls over locks in cyberspace. You only have controls over the keys. And it's giving yeah. those more basic analogies for people to understand their responsibility and yeah. contextualising it in a way that's understandable. Bringing it home yeah. to them, like their personal lives, like you know, and the, like you were saying about risk, like the the risk to them. Like uh, I think the house analogy is a good one, uh, and like, kind of like you say, you're not born with any knowledge to go and lock your door. It's a learned behaviour. So like it's trying to guess prompt people to do their own learning like learn that behaviors that will help them and their family so yeah. um, but i think bringing it to kids is a good one because like obviously that's every parent's kind of nightmare and worry uh, nightmare <laughs> yeah yeah is their security like i can't actually imagine what it must be like growing up just now like even though i'm well, i'm only 31 so i i did grow up with the internet you know msn messenger and stuff like that but like even younger than that like you're to under 10 years old and stuff like um, obviously they shouldn't have a facebook but a lot of parents will let them do it but if you're giving them access to these systems and to the internet like the parents probably aren't teaching them how to stay safe like i'm sure they would want to if they could um so i guess being able to get that point across them and take it home like you know bring it back to the house and protecting them would be a good way to try getting that across with simple analogies like you say well, i think that probably is the best way yeah so you can create the, the the basic analogies you can bring in home life you know i talk about iot smart connected devices we all have them in our homes and it's really important for people to just understand the exposure it's an open door into your home life if you're not yeah. securing those and taking it seriously it could be potentially compromised so i think it's it's really important to make it important to the individual self but also making it accessible so the one thing we do in security is all that is we use acronyms and terminology that can be misconstrued even by the you know experts the the amount of different acronyms we've got for different things in security can be a little bit crazy so yep. I, I, re I think it's really important to make it understandable relatable and accessible yeah absolutely not use yeah. the jargon but make you know for them to you know when you're saying um you know 2fa multi-factor authentication and explaining what that means well basically you're going to put your password in and then it's going to send you a text to your mobile phone and you put the code in sometimes it, we people won't know what, what MFA is or 2FA is. And I know that sounds crazy, but I think we've got to look at the audience that we're speaking to, not mm -hmm. assume that everybody understands the technology. And even if there's two people in the audience that don't know what that is, they're the two people in the audience that you really do want to reach. So say yeah. MFA is, a, that's multi-factor authentication. It's really easy. You just set it up and all they'll do is they'll send a text to your phone and you put your password in. Demystifying mm -hmm. it, making it accessible so that, you know, 
when I'm, I'm sat there chatting to my taxi driver on the way to the train station, he can relate and understand security. I want everybody to be able to understand how they can protect themselves and not see it as a scary thing to do. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Like, explain it to your gran. It's like, oh, te- uh, teach, granny. Like what it, teach, teach granny. Teach such granny is such a good methodology. Yeah. But also, I totally agree with that, Joe. Bringing people to the same level. Um, one of the things I try to do when I'm speaking to clients, when I'm reporting, when I'm doing public talks, when I'm on the podcast, I try and bring everyone up to the same level as much as possible. Because you never really know who's listening. You never really know who's reading or who who's who's there. And when you when we use so many TLAs, three letter acronyms, so many different acronyms in general, like we talk about PCI, the payment card industry, we talk about GDPR, the global data fuck knows um, laws and shit, the CMA, the Computer Music Act. The, you can let you could have a whole podcast of just three letter acronyms and different acronyms, and people wouldn't have a fucking clue what's going on. We use computer using non technical or cunt for short. I mean, there's there's all sorts. Yeah, and I think that's half the battle, especially when you have to facilitate for a diverse workforce. We can sometimes use terminology that is confusing. And even if I'm on the phone with a group of five professionals, we can all be sitting there using acronyms in different fashions. It's really important to clarify. Yeah. And Agreed. Not use them if 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 you're looking to educate, fantastic. No. But maybe just look at the acronyms that you're using, or use them and make sure that you're explaining them. You can't always assume. I think that goes back to the original point we were making. You can't always assume that everybody's got the same level of knowledge and insight that we have. Understands the risks, understands the implication, can see that bigger yeah. picture. Yeah. No, for absolutely sure. Like, um, yeah, it, it, acronyms are. Even as someone who's recently got into the industry, like uh, playing acronym, acronym like uh, memory games and stuff, just to have to remember most of them. Like, so that's never going to be of any use to anybody that's you know not pa- wanting to learn those acronyms. That you you need to explain it in a term without them. But like, I think that maybe as a skill for some people to learn that are in the industry that have had to learn them themselves and just use them interchangeably as general English language. Um, I know I do that from time to time now. Uh, but yeah, if you're doing training and awareness, I guess that just absolutely wouldn't fly uh, by any means. Um, there's a question I'd like to ask you, Joe, uh, from um, Morgan, obviously previous podcast uh, cast guest um uh, she would like one story about being a woman in tech funny heartwarming weird annoying or whatever floats your boat um and she'd like to know what you're going to be doing uh with yourself in the next five years she, she wants a lot a lot doesn't she jesus she does just <laughs> but they're all great questions so i uh, i agree Absolutely. I'll just make some more life decisions now. <laughs> <laughs> Commit myself to, to life, eh? <laughs> oh, so, you know, they're quite interesting questions, and I'll tell you for, for why. Um, with regards to being asked about a woman in, in tech question, I've never really defined myself as a woman in tech. I, I absolutely identify as she, her, but I, I, I've never kind of just based myself as being a pioneer on, on that side. But I have mm-hmm. been quite passionate on engaging with the Ladies of London Hacking Society. I've been really passionate about engaging with Cyber um, Cyber First for Girls, um, an initiative on increasing and educating girls on the potential opportunities in the industry. So I guess with regards to that, I think... 
One of my best stories is probably standing up to deliver a talk. Uh, I was not the expected speaker, shall we say. <laughs> and I absolutely nailed it. And I mean, you know, when you just nail it, all of your jokes yeah. are perfect, your research lands, the demo works perfectly. Yeah, the demo gods be good. The fuck. demo gods be very, very good. And afterwards, um, I, I spoke to a client and they said to me, do you know what, I just wanted to apologise because when you arrived... I had quite negative connotations instantly. Um, he said it more politely and used a bit more bantery words, but he'd yeah. made a judgment on arrival and yeah. I'd blown a bunch of engineers completely out of the water and he mm. literally came and apologised for that misconception and to give me you know, some, some huge compliments afterwards. And that was... I guess really positive from that perspective because it is nice when people can acknowledge that they've had a misconception. Yeah, can acknowledge their biases. Yeah, they, they, they might have pre, like you say preconceptions. Like and yeah, owning up to it. I guess like well, they say, um, ne- they say never, that's unusual. They yeah. say never judge a book by its cover. So that that's that's a prime example. Yeah, and I also felt confident rocking it how I was. So I turned up. Joe Styley, nice heels, you know, painted nails, rocking rocking the look as you do, you know, my, my cyber rock look. And mm-hmm. I, I just wasn't what they were expecting. And to create, um, to, to, to create solid knowledge transfer, to be received really well, to have that positive feedback and that kind of apology and acknowledgement really fed into me understanding and complimenting myself maybe yeah. quelling that imposter syndrome monster a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was really quite positive. It was, um, I, I've really struggled with public speaking. It's taken me three and a half years to be able to speak in informing public. I've worked extremely mm-hmm. hard on it. So to have that was, yeah, very, very good. And I rocked it as a woman, as myself, in my own confidence, yeah. my own words. And... Yeah, it was quite nice and empowering, although not everyone... It was a strange situation, do you see what I mean? To be misconceived, but to take that as a positive. But yeah, it was quite It was quite nice, quite empowering. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because like, I, I, it, sh- it shouldn't be this way, but it, uh, it clearly is, just if uh, everybody I spoke to. But it must be incredibly daunting as a woman going up on a stage with a room which, which I'm imagining unfortunately like is just chock full of guys like um, kind of looking up to you and obviously from, from that one example there, there are cases of people with those misconceptions but the thing is like obviously for the people that were in that audience like uh, and to have those misconceptions kind of you, you've had you, you've shown them what you're about and it's just washed away obviously these misconceptions and they'll then take that out into hopefully the world that they live in and hopefully be a more kind of uh, a positive force for uh, yeah, a bit more equality and a bit less thinking, uh, judging a book f- by its cover uh, yeah. before you've even heard them speak. Yeah, and I think not being int- introducing myself sometimes as a hybrid consultant or as sales or however, you know, dependent on, on which talk that I'm doing, people yeah. don't instantly give you credence if you're not a serious technical consultant which I mm. think is wrong. You know, I, I maybe yeah, I'm not sure. a penetration tester, but I absolutely understand research. I understand business risk. I understand the different ways that businesses approach that. 
I helped devise those plans. I mean, ultimately, I do feel quite honoured the position that we're in, although I work with some phenomenal people, they deliver the programmes that I scope and create and devise with the client. Yeah. You know, it's like art work sometimes. I do feel like sometimes things that we do are like art, especially when you see some of the charts and the crazy things that cybersecurity can create, you know, when they're creating links and diagrams. But it is, it's like art work what we do. Yeah, no, absolutely. You look at some of the diagrams of like, uh, like even Bloodhound can get a bit crazy. Like uh, just mapping out like internal networks, like or you're looking at pictures of the internet, like um, you know all the different endpoints and like a big circle and how they're all connected. Like people do artwork like that. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of complexity in security. Like uh, and complexity makes some interesting art for sure. Yeah. Uh, where do you see yourself in? Uh, yeah, so it's always a hard one. Where do you see see yourself in five uh, years? And where, those kind of questions. See, I suppose where do you see it? Rather, rather than time, future. Type, rather than time boxing it, yeah, where do you see yourself in the future? Besides changing the world still, one cybersecurity question at a time. Besides, which... besides being an absolute rock star, Joe, where do you see yourself in the future? Yeah. <laughs> what I'd like to be doing is working more on end-to-end security. So I'm... I've been very honoured, as I said, to work on such a variety of projects that have gone from initial engagement of, of complete, you know, we're just in design phase of a new prototype product solution network through to its actual creation, testing, moving forward and migration. But I'm also involved in businesses that do that from an end-to-end perspective. So understanding you know, with regards to ISO 27001, what they need with regards to compliance and regulation through to the advisory that sits around that, what they have to implement, the projects, the testing that fits around that, how that needs to be evolved, how that sits with red teaming, purple teaming, with secure development, forensics, IR, the whole kind of wraparound end-to-end business mm-hmm. risk assurance piece. I know that Mm -hmm. sounds really big and I have spoken to people about this before, but I think it's really important to have that end-to-end perspective of risk. And Mm -hmm. I don't think we've quite got that through anything we've got available at the moment. Mm -hmm. I think you have to piece various standards together in order to get that picture properly. Yeah, and you're trying to paint like the full picture itself and be able to put that out there. And the thing is, having the knowledge to do that, like... It, it takes time and experience which obviously something something that you've had there which is great so but it sounds so full spectrum that there must be a minority of people that could pull it off you know within the industry and it takes because it would be so multifaceted uh, and uh, I know you'll get there and you'll absolutely <laughs> smash it because you're already along the way do you know what I mean it's, it's a bit of a crazy one and it's not something that can be done in isolation I think there's that many different standards and pieces of advice but it takes me back to my original message making it simple accessible and attainable for, for, for people that are just looking to dip the toe in the water and mm. those that are readily experienced but maybe having particular issues. It's, yeah, it's, it's not an easy question, but to have that full spectrum of understanding, I think is really valuable. And I, don't, I, I haven't got any answers, and I kind of like that in cybersecurity. You don't always have to have, have the answers because yeah, 
there's always people posing questions there's lots of research that you can draw from and then it's kind of building apart standing on the shoulders of giants is a great phrase that I've, I've I love heard. that phrase I use it so often because it's very much you're taking something somebody else has built someone else's initial research uh, you're adding your spin on it and creating either something new or something with new value that might not have been there before so yeah standing on the shoulders of giants well the question I've always got phrase. for that, that phrase how big are these giants like <laughs> very very big how, how tall are these There's, people are we talking like seven foot are we talking like the iron giant size like, uh, we're talking big friendly giant I ah. believe is the scale that gets used uh, the, the official scale when talking about you know uh, but does that have a different them. climate up there like what are we dealing with I'll be sure to ask my BFG friend uh, for, big friendly for ginger Andy <laughs> you are the, you're the BFG oh, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's getting used um, what, obviously we're kind of uh, we've uh, kind of come into uh, I suppose it, what would normally be the end of the cast but uh, if you've got the time Joe there's a couple of questions um, just that I'd uh, to like ask. to ask if you've still got the time yeah absolutely um, what's been your and this might be a difficult one because we've obviously kind of touched on you've got feel like you got a bit of imposter syndrome like you know obviously so many arguably everybody but uh, if you can answer it what's been the greatest achievement of your career so far because obviously there'll be more great achievements to be had but thus far like what's the greatest really good question and I actually, I'd like to give a couple. The reason being is because I think each significant achievement has led to another path. And Mm -hmm. I think what we're all in detriment of doing is not celebrating the many achievements that we do along the way. So we have an ultimate goal, which is great, but it's celebrating all the little things that we've done along the way. You know, i.e., I mean, just a small example, for example, you know, I've been working in uni, I'm passing my exams. I haven't celebrated passing any of my exams because I'm not at the end of my master's yet, which is crazy. Yeah. But we, no, you're right. you know, we yeah. have these little journeys that we have, have gone on. And I think ultimately up until this stage, I've been very honoured and very privileged for the businesses I've worked with. I've had the opportunity of running my own company for five years. I've shared and rocked my own international stage doing live hacking demonstrations against industrial mm-hmm. control system networks. Um, I have I've QA'd one of the famous um, Andy Gill's reports and made suggestions <laughs> and added value. Absolutely. But more recently, after a lot of the experience that I've had and taking the time to restock on the skills and the abilities that I've created... I've also been given the opportunity of going and expanding opportunities in Europe, which I'm so, so proud about. It Mm -hmm. gives a new direction for myself. I want to start working more internationally, understanding international strategy, getting my global clients to work more cohesively. There's so many fantastic ideas that I want to bring in, and I now have a new platform to do so. But I've only ended up at this I've only ever ended up at this place by working through telesales and being my top the, the top telesales person for the month by taking a risk and taking a different role by believing in myself and taking help from mentors and advisors around me. Mm. So I just you know it's really important to celebrate those that are giving you those opportunities. 
recognizing and acknowledging those opportunities and recognizing all those little bits of achievements that get you to where you are so ultimately my greatest achievement is being promoted and being responsible for growth and strategy in europe with regards to cyber security mm. but i wouldn't have ever got there if it wasn't for several of my other greatest achievements either yeah it's all the little steps in between, uh, all those little stepping stones, all the little challenges that you've kind of, uh, you've had to surpass, like, you know, to kind of get where you're going. Like, and I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's really easy not to give yourself credit for these little bits and bobs. Quite frankly, I've been through times in my life where it's hard. I should have given myself more credit just for managing to get out of bed in the morning. Like, you know what I mean? Like, never mind the little things like doing a certification, helping somebody else, getting valuable feedback. Like, these are all little achievements, but it's easy to just let them go by the wayside. So I, I absolutely couldn't agree more uh, with that. Uh, and what, what a great achievement. And like I say, I'm sure you've got many more to go. Um, on, on the flip side of that as well, though, uh, what's been your most embarrassing moment of your career so far? Well, <laughs> I've been trying to think. So there was one, but I fixed it, so I don't know if that really counts. <laughs> um, but I turned up to, to deliver a talk. It was a live demonstration uh, to a bunch of engineers. So it wasn't one where I was going to get away with the high-level overview, if that makes sense. Yeah. I needed the technology, I needed the flashing lights, I needed the kit, and I, op yeah. I opened my demo laptop, and whatever I'd done, I'd wiped every virtual machine. Oh, no <laughs> So... Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I was very excited about it. So everything I'd kind of pre-set up for my scripts, met all my demos, <sighs> everything was gone, and I had 15 minutes before the talk was due to start, Mm -hmm. They were in a session, so I had I just I just pulled all the kit out, set everything up. I'm sat there sweating in this kind of long dress, heels on, makeup on, try you know just trying not to get too much of a glaze on. Furiously <laughs> trying to get my new VPN set up, get it configured. I was on the phone with one of the specialised ICS consultants because I just couldn't get something working. No idea why. And then as we're running through troubleshooting, I actually came up with the issue. But as I'm kind of doing this, the clients and all the delegates are walking around me because they've come out for break. Yeah. Oh, so no. I'm sat there with all this tech and kit and my bright pink pelly box. So I wasn't looking discreet mm -hmm. by any stretch of the means. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to not look like I was sweating. Um, yeah. But I did fix the situation, but it was the varying looks. And I think the only other one that resonated was around public speaking, which was years ago. So anybody that's looking to, to break into that or share research, just keep going would be the advice. So my first ever talk, it was very intimate with a long-term client and I was delivering it to a board and I stood up, I knew my content, I wasn't worried and my voice literally shook for oh, the God. first 15 minutes. Now, when people told me that voice shaking, I thought it was a turn of phrase, not a real thing, until I opened yeah. my mouth. Hey, my name's uh, Joan Alton. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking around the room and I'm talking and I'm thinking, what is wrong with my voice? You know, yeah. mental head. And I'm looking around the table and I can see them kind of looking out the, the, the side of the right corner of the right to each other thing. Is she okay? <laughs> but I just kept going, cracked my first joke and kind of eased into it after about 15 minutes. Yep. It was the most mortifying experience ever, but again, it did come to a conclusion, but both were 
horrific in the moment, if that makes sense, and it's not something I could hide. So I think yeah. the key thing is cybersecurity and one piece of advice. No one else knows. Just keep going. It'll be fine. <laughs> I am sure there must be a lot of comedians out there that uh, can resonate. And just in general, public speakers, but like just obviously because it's relevant to yourself. But um, yeah, there must be a lot of people that have been through that there. And it's, it's great to hear that that's something you've been actively working to overcome. Uh, public speaking is not something I'm strong with by any stretch of the imagination, but it's something I'd very much like to be good at because it opens up avenues to you. So yeah. um, no, no, those are funny, funny stories. Yeah. I've experienced that um, before as well. Not, not, the, not the voice shaking, but similar. So I, the first ever... Uh, security talk I gave was in Amsterdam at Hack in the Box and I lost my voice for the la- first five minutes of the talk I literally like mm-hmm. opened my mouth and my voice just wasn't there because I had a cold <laughs> and my um, the two two co-speakers had to kind of take over take the wheel so to speak mm. uh, which was hellish and you, you, you're right Joe you just need to just kind of keep keep going just keep going and I think there's a lot of value I think although we say public speaking and people talk about talking at events which you know some of us have it's really important public speaking could be just simply having a um, a a team's conversation over video call and being able to enunciate and communicate clearly it could be sharing research with an internal team I think public speaking has the perception that it has to be on a stage in front of people but I think the same connotations can have the same anxiety effects on individuals on a more intimate setting and mm. in cyber security we have to be able to talk to people feel confident in what we're saying and not have that imposter monster syndrome constantly mm. pushing us back down yeah no absolutely no that's harder easier said than done but uh, if you had one bit of advice just from what you've learned because obviously you've, you've kind of advised it you, you've, you, you did have issues with this and you're, you're working on overcoming it and somewhat have. If you had one bit of advice for people that are trying to improve their public speaking, what, what would that be, Joe? I hope my public speaking trainer doesn't kill me for giving away free advice. <laughs> the most valuable piece of advice I've been given is slow down and don't say um. Oh my God, I see it so much. I've said it a few times, I've said it a few times, I know I have, you know, the repetitive of words, but that has been one of the the most key pieces of advice, and I think it's quite standard, I think we all know it, and I think sometimes that's the issue with our industry, we already know. We already know what the advice is. Generally, it's it's that challenge of, like you said, overcoming the fear if it's not something that you're particularly good at. Yeah, good advice and I'll have to learn it myself personally. (laughs) To to be honest though, one of the things I've been focusing on is trying not to say um, but I've watched back a lot of professional speakers and a lot of people like politicians and comedians and they do say um and they do kind of rush things. Nobody's perfect I suppose is a key thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you could become more conscious of it, you start to say it less and when you, I I think as we all agree... I'm absolutely not going to listen back to this podcast because nobody likes the sound of their own voice. I love and the sound of my own voice. I'm narcissistic as fuck. Well, you I've do. I've not listened to a single one. Like, <laughs> not a single. I've not listened to a single. Other than the bits that I uh, uh, edit and stuff, uh, I've not listened to a single Ouija cast all the way through because I just can't bring myself to hear the 
it's myself very hard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very hard to listen to yourself back. One, because your voice actually sounds different than it does within your own ear when you're talking. Mm-hmm. So hearing yourself back, it's a different volume, so you do sound different. But it can, yeah. it can just be a challenge. And I think when you hear the amount of times that you say um and how you deliver it, so that's absolutely been one of the best pieces of advice that I've been given. Other than also, because I've been given lots of advice over the years regarding public speaking, and I have a certain personality. I do have a northern accent, and over the years, people have told me to change who I am. I think one of the other pieces of advice is absolutely stay who you are. Take yeah, take on sure. board decent advice about slowing down, maybe adapting certain words, not using local nuances. But stay who you are. Keep your personality. Keep your passion in there. Yeah, because that's who got it's you that got yourself where you're going. Or, you know, into the position to begin with the speaking line, and that's probably whilst you might or some people might give that advice. Um, I, I must admit, I always stay true to yourself because if not, you're just gonna you're gonna get. It's gonna be pretty clear that you're you're not being you, like you know. Um, whereas I think people can get really personable and kind of relate to someone that's clearly just being themselves on the stage, but also just being an absolute badass, much like yourself, Joe. Oh, thank you very much. Absolutely, <laughs> my pleasure. Fantastic. Right. I think um, I'm just. I think that's pretty much us. Yeah, yeah. An hour and forty, which is awesome. It's been such a great chat. Um, the last question we always like to ask because uh, it is somewhat of a platform uh, is there anything that you'd like to to plug or kind of put out there into the world uh, so the people listening uh, can hear it well what a fantastic question so there's a couple of things i would like to plug at the end one is if anybody is looking to run talks with regards to cyber assurance business risk iot security absolutely get in touch i've been working extremely hard on content and becoming a speaker so i would like the opportunity of going out there and communicating research that is being done advice etc so I'm, i'm open for talks if anyone would like to approach me appropriately with regards to anything else i'd actually like to plug the security community itself Mm-hmm. One thing that's absolutely resonated all through the podcast and from lots of things that I talk about is that no one would be where they were without the support of the industry. Mm-hmm. And I completely agree. You know, People like yourself that I've met at SteelCon, the opportunity that I had to promote um, to speak within the chil- you know, the, the children's sessions that they were running, completely. For, so, you know, I had an opportunity of providing education to children at the SteelCon event, B-Sides, the Ladies of London Hacking Society, you know, the security queens, without people out there producing the content, educate, providing sessions, working in their own time, developing all of this material content, running events, I wouldn't be where I am. Several other people wouldn't be where they are. I wouldn't have met you, you know. So for me, I just wanted to give a shout out to all those people I've worked with, engaged with, delivered talks with, gone to talks with, badgered for demos, content, because just everyone could keep doing what they're doing. And I'm absolutely willing to contribute to that community and go out and, and speak to people if they're willing to have me. 
Yeah, they would be lucky to uh, to take your advice, and if they've listened to this podcast, uh, they will take a lot of stuff from it, just much the same as myself here. Um, so, I, yeah, I just uh, before Andy leads us out, um, yeah, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on here, Joe. It's been super valuable. Uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully meeting up with you again at future conferences uh, when the world decides that we're allowed to do that again. Uh, but yeah, just uh, thanks so much. Yeah, I want to follow up with that as well and say thank you so much, not just for coming to the podcast, but just for being fantastic in uh, like my career and stuff. You've given me a lot of great pointers and a lot of great feedback, especially from a reporting standpoint, and it's just been excellent. Uh, so, yeah, into the, the outro of the podcast. I won't fuck this one up. Uh, thanks everyone for listening to Ouija Cast. this has been episode 18 uh, we've had Joe Dalton and she's been fucking class uh, feel free to say goodbye from me bye <laughs>